0: Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I mentioned previously that we're having a true crime podcast meetup in October. You can find all the details for this event in the Murderish podcast Facebook group. There's an invitation pinned to the top of the feed. The meetup will be in LA on October 6th at a really cool bar called Idle Hour. I'll be there representing Murderish and I'll be joined by the hosts of The Cleaning of John Doe, Murderous Miners, White Wine True Crime, Pretty Scary, The Pros and Cons, and Crime with Three Eyes. There might also be a mystery podcast host joining us, but as these things go, his or her attendance remains a mystery at this point. Stay tuned for more info on that as the meetup gets closer. I hope you'll consider getting out of the house to mingle with pod hosts and listeners who all share a very weird passion for murder chit-chat just like you. I really hope to meet some of you there.
1: This show contains content that may not be suited for everyone. Sensitive topics are discussed, and this may be a trigger for some people. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
0: In this episode of Murderish, we're delving into a serial killer who got his name from the manner in which he captured many of his victims. This case was suggested to me months ago by a listener of the podcast. Sadly, his cousin was one of the victims, and in fact, she was the youngest of all the victims. Daryl Keith Rich, known as the Hilltop Rapist, was born February 14, 1955. Although he was born on Valentine's Day, this would be no indication of who Daryl Rich would become as an adult. Rich was born in Torrance, California, which is in Los Angeles County. Two days after his birth, Rich was adopted by Dean and Lillian Rich, who lived in Cottonwood, California. The Riches also had an adopted daughter named Sharon. Lillian Rich operated a daycare out of their family home, which Rich grew to resent because he disliked all of the attention Lillian gave to the other children. Rich claimed his mother was domineering, which is a well-known common denominator amongst many serial killers. Rich claimed his parents argued a lot, and when he was 15 years old, his parents divorced. This caused Rich to fall into a deep depression and he began exhibiting suicidal tendencies. A school psychologist thought Rich might become violent, although Rich never received any sort of treatment for this. Already a poor student, Rich's grades suffered even more after his parents divorced. He subsequently got suspended from school for fighting and truancy. At the age of 17, Rich began a downward spiral, exhibiting extremely violent behavior which was amplified when he was drunk. Rich went hunting and shot himself in the chest after an argument with his girlfriend. Psychologists would later determine this appeared to be a suicide attempt, especially given that Rich was an experienced hunter. In that same year, Rich fired a gun at a police car. Luckily, nobody was hurt during this incident. When he was arrested, Rich said he wanted the police officer to kill him. Rich had another run-in with the law a year after he was arrested for firing at a police car. After getting drunk, Rich crashed into another vehicle while driving his mother's car. He was ordered to serve time at county jail camp and while there, he received counseling. The counselor noted that Rich had a short temper, particularly while he was drunk. It was recommended to Rich that he seek help for his issues, but Rich refused, saying that he learned to deal with his temper while in jail and in previous counseling sessions. The following year, at the age of 19, Rich attacked his friend with a tire iron. He was intoxicated at the time of the incident. When law enforcement arrived, Rich punched the windshield of his friend's car and was described as going, quote, berserk. He was sentenced to the California Youth Authority. While there, Rich got his girlfriend pregnant and the two married. After his stint at the California Youth Authority, Rich got a job at a lumber mill and was on a good path. This would not last though, as Rich soon began hitting his wife. The two of them separated in 1977 and shortly after, Rich met a new woman named Darlene Munzinger. The two began dating and Darlene quickly moved in with Rich. Soon after moving in together, The two had problems, which led Darlene to moving in and out of the house several times. Darlene would break up with Rich, only to get back together with him shortly after. July of 1978 was the couple's final breakup, as Darlene became afraid of Rich during this time. At the time of their breakup, Rich told Darlene he was glad she would not be around, quote, when all the stuff came up. Darlene didn't know what Rich was referring to, and when she asked, Rich told her he would tell her later. Darlene had no idea that Rich had begun a vicious crime spree only a month before their final breakup. In June of 1978, Rich began raping women. As I go into the details of these crimes, I will mention names of victims. Some of these names, however, might be pseudonyms. On June 13th of 1978, 25-year-old Donna W. was walking to a Circle K in Redding, California. The convenience store was about three blocks away from her parents' house. Rich approached Donna from behind, pushed her down a hill, and attempted to sexually assault her. Brenda fought back, and Rich began hitting her over the head repeatedly. He hit her over the head with a rock, fracturing her skull. Rich left Donna to die on that hillside. She lay there for over 12 hours, and despite this, Donna survived. She tried several times to climb up the hill for help, but kept falling back down. Donna would later be rescued, and unfortunately, she suffered from dizzy spells, headaches, and double vision after the brutal attack. Rich would strike again just six days later. 19-year-old Robin H. left the county fair in Anderson, California, about 10 miles from Redding. Robin was walking home alone around 11 p.m. when she saw a man who seemed to be watching her. The man, Daryl Rich, got out of his car and yelled, quote, Hey, come here. After Robin refused, Rich got back into his car and drove off. At this time, spooked by Rich, Robin began running toward a Greyhound bus station. As she was running, Rich grabbed Robin and forced her into his car. It was dark outside and I can just imagine how frightened Robin must have been. Rich drove the petrified teenager to the countryside and raped her repeatedly. When he was done, Rich drove around for a while and eventually told Robin to get out of the car. He threatened that he would come and get her if she told anyone because he knew where she lived. Robin got to a payphone and called her sister-in-law. The two called police and reported the incident. Two days later, Rich saw 14-year-old Lisa S. walking with her boyfriend in Redding, California. Rich pulled up next to the young couple and asked if they needed a ride. As Lisa's boyfriend opened the car door for her, Rich grabbed the girl and pulled her into his car, leaving Lisa's boyfriend behind. Rich raped the young girl and eventually let her go. The following month, on July 4th, Rich saw 19-year-old Marla Y walking by herself. Rich abducted Marla and knocked her unconscious. When she came to, Rich raped Marla and told her not to look at him, and then he drove off. The same day he abducted and raped Marla, Rich spotted 19-year-old Annette Edwards on Sulphur Creek Hill in Redding. While Annette was walking to a fireworks show, Rich abducted Annette and raped her. When he was done, Rich beat Annette to death with a rock. He then stole money from her purse, stuffed her clothing inside the purse, and threw it into the Sacramento River. Two weeks later, on July 19th, 15-year-old Kelly M. was riding her bike home from a cousin's house in Red Bluff, California. Rich approached Kelly and asked her what time it was. He then grabbed Kelly by the hair, pulling her off her bike. He punched the young girl and forced her into his car. Rich raped Kelly repeatedly before letting her go. The following month, on August 3rd, Rich crossed paths with 17-year-old Pam Moore. Pam was last seen hitchhiking in Redding after running away from a foster home. Pam had a rough family life and had been placed in foster care numerous times. Rich spotted her hitchhiking, abducted her, and raped her in a remote area. When he was done, Rich picked up a rock and struck Pam in the head, fracturing her skull. Pam's body was discovered two and a half weeks later. She had been beaten to death. Five days after raping and murdering Pam, Rich would strike again. Linda Slavik, a 28-year-old married woman and mother of a 9-year-old boy, was at a bar with her friend in Chico, California. Linda's friend left the bar around 1 a.m. When she returned 45 minutes later, Linda was gone. It would later be discovered that Rich abducted Linda and took her to his home in Cottonwood. Rich raped Linda and then drove her to the same remote area at which he murdered Pam Moore just five days earlier. Rich showed Linda Pam's dead body as she pled for mercy. Rich shot and killed Linda and left her body near Pam's. Less than a week later, Rich would meet his youngest victim. Eleven-year-old Annette Selix lived in the same town as Rich, Cottonwood, California. Annette played Little League baseball, played the trumpet, and loved horses. On August 13th of 1978, Annette was in the care of her mother's boyfriend, David Tidwell. Tidwell's brother was also at the house. Annette's mother, Sharon, and her older sister were away visiting another one of Annette's sisters, who was married and lived in Pioneer, California. While Annette was at Tidwell's house, she must have asked if she could go to the store, which was about a block away. Tidwell agreed to let Annette go, and she headed toward the store around 9.30pm to buy some snacks. During the time Annette was gone, Tidwell and his brother fell asleep. When they awoke, they assumed Annette made it home and was in bed. Annette's mother, Sharon, returned to the home later that evening. She also assumed Annette was asleep and headed off to bed. The next morning, a friend of Annette's called the house and asked for her. Sharon went to Annette's bedroom to tell her a friend was on the phone, but discovered that her bed had not been slept in. The night before, Rich spotted Annette walking home from the grocery store. He abducted her and drove her back to his house as he did with Linda Slavik. Young Annette must have been terrified. Rich raped and sodomized the young girl before driving her 30 miles away to Johns Creek Bridge. In what can only be described as pure evil, Rich threw Annette off the bridge 105 feet onto the rocks below. An autopsy would later show that Annette survived the fall for a short time. Annette had crawled into a fetal position and sadly died after swallowing her own blood. After the murder of Annette Sellex, Rich began talking about his crimes with friends. He reportedly instructed two of his friends on how to rape girls. Rich's friends said that Rich told them the murders didn't bother him anymore because, quote, once you've killed, you can always kill again. Another friend of Rich's, Carl Frank, later told authorities that Rich told him to go to the dump in Igo, California because he knew dead bodies were there. On August 23rd, 10 days after he murdered 11-year-old Annette Selix, Rich was brought into the Shasta County Sheriff's Office for questioning. Sheriffs wanted to speak with Rich regarding Annette's murder. Rich was not a suspect at the time. Sheriffs brought him in because he had previously worked for Annette's mother, Sharon. After the interview, Rich agreed to return the following day to take a polygraph test. Just before he took the polygraph test, the examiner learned that Rich had reported finding a body at the dump in Igo, California. After the polygraph examiner questioned him further, Rich said he actually found two bodies at the dump, which would have been Pam Moore and Linda Slavik. Questions regarding Pam Moore and Linda Slavic were added to the list of questions asked during the polygraph test. When the test concluded, the examiner told detectives he believed Rich was lying when he said he wasn't involved in the deaths of Moore and Slavic. Detectives told Rich it appeared he had been lying during the test, and this made him nervous. Rich asked detectives if he could leave. Having nothing concrete on which to hold him, they let Rich go. Rich went to see his friend Gail Croxell after the polygraph test. Rich told Croxell and his girlfriend that he failed the exam. He then admitted to killing Pam Moore, saying the Hells Angels paid him $7,000 to do so because Pam was a police informant, which was not true. Croxell asked Rich if he had killed Linda Slavic as well, and Rich admitted he had, saying, quote, she was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Rich proceeded to show Croxel and his girlfriend exactly how he killed her. Rich even imitated Slavik's voice as she begged for her life. After Rich left, Croxel's girlfriend called the Shasta County Sheriff's Office to inform them of what Rich had told them. She later gave a written statement saying that Rich told them the rifle he used to murder Pam Moore was still at his mother's house. Rich wasn't done talking about the murders. The following day, he told some other friends a similar story, adding that he needed to come up with an alibi to avoid being arrested. These friends also alerted sheriffs about Rich's statements, which prompted them to arrest him that same evening. Detective Rusty Brewer found Rich at a bar in Reading around 11 p.m. and made the arrest. Detective Brewer drove Rich back to the station for questioning. After the interview, the detective put Rich back into his vehicle, drove him around, and asked him where evidence could be discovered. During the drive, Rich told Detective Brewer that a rifle he used to kill Pam Moore was at his mother's house. The following day, a search was conducted at Rich's home in Cottonwood. During the search, sheriffs found items that Annette Selix had purchased from the grocery store the night she was abducted and murdered by Rich. The items were found in Rich's refrigerator. Rich would have been taken to Shasta County Jail, but trustees warned that inmates were saying that whoever murdered Annette Sellex would be, quote, taken care of. Due to the safety concern, Rich was taken to a substation in Bernie, California. While at the substation, Rich admitted to murdering Annette and handed deputies a list which he claimed had all the crimes he was responsible for on it. Rich would later be charged with numerous counts of kidnapping, rape by force, oral copulation by force, sodomy by a person over 21 on a person under the age of 16, second- and first-degree murder, among other serious charges. At trial, Rich's defense claimed insanity. Rich also claimed diminished capacity and provided an extensive account of his family and psychological history. He did this by calling 44 witnesses, some were experts and some not. Under Penal Code 987.9, Rich's defense was able to retain 11 medical experts and had access to almost $90,000 in investigative funds. Penal Code 987.9 states that in a trial of a capital case or a case under subdivision of Section 190.05, the indigent defendant, through the defendant's counsel, may request the court for funds for the specific payment of investigators, experts, and others for the preparation or presentation of the defense. Despite putting this sum of money to work in his defense, overwhelming evidence was presented to show Rich's guilt and his cognitive mental state. Rich was a sexual sadist who did not suffer from any brain dysfunction or loss of memory, and this was proven in court. Prosecution witness Dr. Albert French testified that Rich suffered from explosive disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Dr. French concluded, however, that Rich was not insane. Another witness for the prosecution, Dr. Bruce Caldor, testified that Rich suffered from quote, severe masculine insecurity, but he was not insane. Dr. Caldor went on to say that Rich was a quote, selfish and childlike man. The defense called as a witness Dr. Morrison, who testified that Rich suffered from mental illness that put him in a category between neurosis and psychosis. Dr. Morrison went on to say that Rich was insane when he murdered Annette Edwards, Pam Moore, and Annette Selix, but he could not determine whether Rich was insane when he killed Linda Slavic. The prosecution quickly pointed out that Dr. Morrison had only been an expert witness at two previous trials. Dr. David Axelrod, another defense witness, testified that Rich was insane when he committed the murders of Annette Edwards, Pam Moore, and Annette Selix because Rich, quote, could not premeditate, deliberate, or form intent to kill. All three actions were necessary in order to convict Rich of first-degree murder. Dr. Axelrod testified that he used Ericksonian hypnosis with sodium emetol in order to diagnose Rich. The prosecution called expert witnesses of their own to argue against what was said by defense expert witnesses. Dr. Thomas von Dedenroth stated that Dr. Axelrod's methods were incorrect and further stated that Rich was not actually in a trance while Axelrod questioned him. Dr. von Dedenroth testified that Rich did not display the emotional and psychological responses of someone in a trance. Another expert witness for the prosecution stated that he believed Rich was faking answers to another psychiatrist and was also trying to elicit sympathy. Rich's defense team said that after Rich was arrested, he said, quote, he didn't understand how he could have done what he did. They tried to use this statement as an argument for Rich being legally insane. Their strategy would not be successful, as Rich was ultimately found guilty of numerous counts for the heinous crimes he committed. On December 16, 1980, two years after his rape and murdering spree, Daryl Keith Rich was convicted of first-degree murder for the deaths of Annette Edwards, Linda Slavic, and Annette Selix. These counts also included special circumstances of quote, felony murder, lewd and lascivious acts on a child under 14, and quote, multiple murder. He was also convicted of second-degree murder for the killing of Pam Moore. The difference in this count was that the jury did not find special circumstances. He was convicted of three counts of kidnapping, three counts of rape by force, three counts of rape by use of threats, one count of assault with the intent to commit rape, two counts of oral copulation by force, one count of oral copulation of the victim by force, one count of oral copulation by a person over 21 on a person under 16 one count of assault with a deadly weapon by means likely to produce great harm. During the trial, the additional count of sodomy by force was added. After the trial, another trial began in order to determine Rich's sanity. The jury found that Rich was sane when he committed the crimes. Now it was up to the jury to decide Rich's sentence. The jury sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole for one of the first-degree murders. They sentenced him to death for the other two first-degree murder charges. An automatic appeal was filed by the state of California, but it was rejected. Rich went on to file two more appeals to higher courts, but both were denied. Eighteen years after her son was sentenced to death row, Rich's mother died. Prior to her death, she paid for a cemetery plot so Rich could be buried next to her in Cottonwood Cemetery. It was later discovered that the plot Rich's mother purchased was only about 100 feet away from that of his youngest victim, Annette Selix. Annette's mother and stepfather were not going to let this happen as they could not stand the thought of their daughter's murderer being buried near her. When Rich became aware of the situation, he offered to be buried at a different cemetery. While on death row, Rich learned that his biological father was Native American. Rich filed a federal lawsuit in 2000 claiming the San Quentin prison denied his request to participate in a Native American sweat lodge ceremony before his execution. Rich even gave himself the Native American name Young Elk. Rich claimed that his spirit would not be able to cross over unless he participated in the ceremony. Although San Quentin Prison did have a sweat lodge which was used by Native American inmates, Rich belonged to the most restrictive confinement in the prison and was not allowed to leave his unit, even to participate in religious ceremonies. Rich would go on to file a formal appeal in the matter, but it was denied. In 2000, in a last-ditch effort to spare his life, the Board of Prison Terms held a clemency hearing for Rich. The only people to speak on behalf of Rich were death penalty opponents. Nobody from Rich's family spoke at the clemency hearing. Rich's attorney claimed that he had been a model inmate and also pointed out that none of the grand jury members were Native American. His attorney was using these facts as grounds for clemency in a plea to Governor Gray Davis. His pleas would be unsuccessful, as Governor Gray Davis denied clemency for rich, saying he acted in a, quote, callous and almost unbelievably brutal manner. Following their plea to Governor Davis, the defense team asked President Clinton to step in. He declined. One final appeal was filed with the U.S. Supreme Court, but the court declined to hear the case. Rich was going to be executed for his heinous crimes. On March 15, 2000, 21 years after his rape and murdering spree ended, Daryl Keith Rich, 45 years old at the time, was executed by lethal injection at 12.13 a.m. in San Quentin State Prison. After his death, the body of Rich's mother was exhumed from her grave so she could be buried next to her son at San Quentin Prison Cemetery. On the morning of his execution, Rich refused his last meal and opted to drink tea, beef broth, papaya juice, and Gatorade instead. Rich's last words were, quote, peace. That concludes this episode. As always, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this case. Head over to the Murderish Podcast Facebook group and let's talk about it. Don't forget to follow Murderish on Instagram at Murderish Podcast and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. If you're enjoying this podcast, do me the biggest favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Tell a friend about Murderish and leave a positive rating and review in iTunes. If you'd like to take your support for the podcast a step further, head over to patreon.com forward slash murderish where you'll find various support levels and rewards you'll receive in exchange for your support. If you become a patron, you'll have immediate access to bonus content, which includes some fun conversations I've had with other true crime podcast hosts. Murderish merch is available at two online stores. If you'd like to sport a Murderish t-shirt, head over to murderishpodcast.threadless.com or tpublic.com and type Murderish in the search bar. Links to both merch stores can be found in episode show notes and in the About section, of the Murderish Podcast Facebook group. Email your questions and comments to me at murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. This episode was mixed and mastered by John Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Intro and outro music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. Listener warning at the beginning of the show was provided by the host of The Swindled Podcast. Research for this episode was provided by friend of the show, Steve Field. The case discussed in this episode was brought to my attention by Andrew Fontaine. I hope you'll stick around for a couple more minutes to hear promos from my friends from It's Haunted and Suspect Convictions podcasts. I have found so many great podcasts after hearing their promos on other shows. I hope you'll find something new to listen to. As always, thank you for listening to the show. And remember, listening to this show doesn't make you a murderer, It just means you're murder-ish.
1: Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? It's a podcast that brings you true stories about haunted objects and the owners who unknowingly welcome them into their lives. Join me as I share these creepy, spooky, and downright terrifying stories. You can find It's Haunted, What Now? on your favorite podcatcher or at hauntedpod.com. In 1990, newspaper reporter Scott Reeder found a nine-year-old girl's body abandoned in an Iowa school playground.
0: I got to the school right when it was starting to get dark. And there was a police officer there. And the two of us walked over to where we could see a fire on the edge of the playground. We got about a foot from the flames and looked down and realized it was the body of a little girl that had been doused with gasoline and set on fire.
1: The case has haunted him for 27 years. Did the police arrest and a jury convict the wrong person? In 2017, Scott Reeder and the national public radio affiliate, WVIK, launched the podcast, Suspect Convictions, to explore that question. Suspect Convictions soared to number two in the world on iTunes overall chart and captured a top honor for investigative reporting from the Associated Press. The defendant, Stanley Liggins, who has been granted a new trial, will go to court beginning August 28th. And Suspect Convictions will cover every day of the trial, and provide you with the testimony jurors will hear, as well as some information they won't.
0: I ran a second test on it, a different type of test. It's called a peak of tension test. I listed seven different causes of death. Well, he nailed strangulation.
1: He reacted to the strangulation because he knew that's how she died. So then I went over and told him, that's the guy. Well, then I was a hero. Suspect Convictions is a podcast unlike any other. It asks the tough questions others fear to raise. They talk to witnesses. I was brought out of my cell and told I needed to testify, or else I'd be charged with accessory after the fact. They talk to past jurors. I've grown up with black people all my life, you know, in Africa, and most of them, you know, they they can be—I um, won't say threatening, but but they do appear sometimes to be aggressive-looking or, you know, uh, I don't want to sound like a racist or anything like that. They talk to lawyers. Don't
0: be misled by dramatizations about circumstantial evidence. Evidence is evidence, and the jury is permitted and directed to give the weight that the evidence deserves.
1: And they look at irregularities in the case.
0: In one of the later
1: post-conviction relief cases, it was determined that there were about 70 police reports that weren't turned over from the police department to the county attorney's office that had some exculpatory evidence. Suspect Convictions complies with the high reporting standards of National Public Radio. It will post daily episodes throughout the trial, as well as commentary and information that will never be heard in the courtroom. To subscribe, look for Suspect Convictions on whatever podcasting platform you use.